My name's Kate, and I'm happy to be here. And you're listening to the podcast. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. I'm happy to be here, and you're listening to the podcast. Happy to be here. Hi guys, hello. My name's Kate, and I'm happy to be here. And you're listening to the podcast. Happy to be here. How are we doing? How are we feeling? Feeling okay? Feeling not so okay? Whether you're feeling okay or not okay, we will do our usual deep breath in. We'll do a four count in. We'll hold and then we'll do a four count out. So we'll do our four count in now. And then we'll exhale. Nice. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good today. It, we are recording right now. Oh, I got to change my calendar. It is February, which is crazy. We are rocking and rolling through 2023. Uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Um, I think this will be coming out around that time. So very exciting for all you single people or people who are dating. Love to see it. And I have a wonderful new guest on the show with me here today. Her name is Julia. She just finished her PhD in history at Keynes College London, which is like super cool. Uh, her general research interests include uh, gender history, history of medicine, and feminism. And Julie is also an activism outreach supporter with the uh, Avengers, a member of the charity committee of the FGM Education Project, and a member of the editorial collective Feminist Perspectives. So welcome to the show, Julia. Hi. Hi, Kate, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm enjoying the sunshine, even though it's freezing. At least there's sun. Yeah, it's been it's been a little sunny here, which is nice. I feel like winter is just so gray. And then when the sun comes out, I'm like, oh, my God, that's right. Like sun exists. That's nice. Yes, yes that's so true. <laughs> um, so I was curious what drew you to stud studying history and pursuing your PhD? So I started studying history in Brazil. I'm Brazilian and I started studying history in Brazil uh, because like many historians, really, I just really love museums and libraries and that's what I wanted to do all day pretty much just read and write and uh, so after my undergrad I moved to Europe for my masters but I wasn't particularly focused on gender yet uh, I wasn't particularly interested in medicine I knew I was a feminist but I wasn't really sure how to combine that with academia because I was interested in activism as well I started thinking well maybe having a PhD would enable me to contribute to charities through research to integrate history into lots of the political conversations that we have um, today about lgbtq plus rights and mm -hmm. abortion rights all kinds of things um, on the agenda so i wasn't sure how to connect the dots yet but i thought having a phd would help and it has so far <laughs> yeah that's really cool i i think that's what i like too about like um feminism and like academia is it's so inter interdisciplinary uh, like you can apply to like different fields especially history you know yes yeah that's so true and I actually had a women gender studies minor when I was in um, undergrad and I kind of stumbled upon it through a recommendation from one of my English professors who taught uh, women gender studies courses and so I was wondering like how you kind of discovered your research interest in gender history and feminism, which we kind of talked about a little bit, like were, and obviously you kind of mentioned you were interested in these subjects before you just were looking for like connections, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's so funny. You should say, you should say that in your case, it was recommended to you that you pursue, you know, women's studies and, and gender studies, because in, in my case, um, even though I was interested in, in these subjects, I had never really seriously considered studying gender history. I sort of stumbled upon it as well. Mm. But unlike you, it was very much the opposite. It was because a professor told me to avoid it. So, really? um, yes. So um, I did my master's in Italy and I was um, studying the history of alchemy and medicine and I was going through all kinds of alchemical formulas and I thought that was really interesting. And, um, and I came across lots of medical recipes about abortion, about menstruation, all kinds of things like how to have an abortion at home, how to produce more milk, less milk, that kind of thing connected to sexuality and reproduction. And so I was I was really fascinated by these recipes. And I mentioned this to a professor of mine um, who told me that, well, gender studies, that was just not a good idea, really. And uh, I was so surprised because I, I thought that studying this kind of this, this kind of recipe, this kind of medical formula was so fascinating. And I was so intrigued by them. And and he even though he was, you know, he was a nice 
kind person, he he believed, I think, very wrongly, that gender studies just it just wasn't worth it. And he thought uh, I wouldn't be taken seriously. He also said that, uh, and it was sort of a backhanded compliment. I think he was trying to be nice, but he said that basically it would be a waste to to focus on that rather than other things that I would be wasted. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to feel flattered about that, you know, but it still, it was a bit, uh, no, not a bit. It was a lot. It was quite misogynistic, let's just say. And, and so it made me even more sure that that's what I wanted to do because I thought here we have a well-meaning, but you know, older, male, white, straight, cis man, and he's telling me that it's not worth it. So surely there must be something in there that is worth it. Um, so that got me in, you know, intrigued enough that I wanted to pursue these formulas for my PhD and, and follow them, uh, especially because I, I, I could see that they were everywhere. And so I decided to track them down and study their translations for my PhD. And even though uh, I wasn't sure where I was going with this, I was interested in seeing how knowledge about reproduction and the female body changed as it was translated and disseminated. So I wanted to to follow these recipes and see how they were censored and adapted and recreated and what that can tell us about the way the body was understood in the early modern period, but also how that shaped the way we think about the body today. So, you know, he ended up pointing me in the right direction one way or another. That's really interesting to me. Um, I was just reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, and um, the author is was studying plants and was just interested in like other things that weren't typical like science things. Like she was curious, like why, um, like why nature was beautiful. And the professor was like, you shouldn't be thinking about those things. Like that's not real science. And they're kind of reminds of what you're saying because yes. I feel like. Right, like, because there's like certain like socially acceptable things we study, and then there's mm-hmm. like not like oh like that's not gonna get you a job or like oh that's mm-hmm. not like worth it. And it's it's really interesting too, especially when you reference like identity, like who are saying these things. I think yes. it's good to consider them because you know of the um, the systems of power we have today. Like that might in, that's heavily influencing maybe why they're saying those things. So. Oh, definitely, definitely. But but still, what matters is that even though some people don't think it is worth it, enough of us believe it is that we keep on studying and pursuing this and, you know, and, and creating new knowledge. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. But definitely there's a there's a barrier there. There's very much gatekeeping, I think, in academia. And, and, and there's there's a problem with whose voices should be heard for sure. Oh, totally. Um, and that kind of brings me into my uh, next question here. You begin one of your web pages on your website by saying um, in the 1920s, Virginia Woolf famously described how the history of women was unknown. So it has been common knowledge for ages that women exist, bare children have no uh, beards and slender go bald, but save in these respects, we know little of them and have little evidence upon which to base our conclusions. So do you think this like lack of history has kind of shaped how women move through the world today? Yes, I think very much so. And I love I love the irony of, of her description of of the history of women, because because that's so true. I mean, even even for us, you know, young people still the way that we are taught in school is we are taught to admire great men and their battles, their great, you know, great deeds and conquests and things, all of that in inverted commas still. But, you know, women have though for centuries been relegated to a footnote in her, in, in the historical record. And that's if they appear at all. And uh, and following this like feminists like Virginia Woolf, the second wave feminists in the 70s and in the, the 80s really, really started advocating for the study of women in the past and in the present. Mm-hmm. So they argued that women's history and later queer history, gender studies sought to balance the narrative. So I think that's a very interesting way of, of understanding the history of women and gender history in general is we it's not about replacing or focusing exclusively on on women or mm-hmm. other other kinds of people but it's about including all kinds of people in the stories that we tell so this italian professor that i mentioned earlier he's an example of how this focus on women was really not acceptable <laughs> acceptable mm-hmm. or accepted by everyone in universities and you know this this story with the professor was something that happened five, 
seven years ago, you know, so let alone what it was like for academics in the, in the 70s and the 80s, it was so much harder to be taken seriously. But, you know, and, and that's not even thinking about because even all of this, all, all this idea of gaining space in academia to study women and queer people, all kinds of people, really, that's focusing on, you know, on universities and academia, it's even worse in schools, because basically, there's just no time or space, we are told, to focus on these stories. So that's even more of a shame, really, because I, I don't know about you, but I don't really remember coming across too many women in history classes when I was growing up in Brazil. And at the most, we would have like a few queens always in relationship with their husbands and their role as mothers and, you know, the succession and all of that. So it's a bit of a shame because we know that history is always written by the winners by those who are in power and they get to craft the narrative that they want and this story shapes the way that we think about ourselves not only in the past but in the present and how we understand the world around us and that's why it's so crucial that we have a diverse story that we have a, a multiplicity lots and lots of different stories so we need to teach children in school about women scientists leaders artists but we also need to include other people who have traditionally been excluded from marginalized, racialized communities, queer communities, trans people, you know, it's it's difficult to feel like you belong if you can't find people like you in history, I think. And and I think that's exactly what Virginia Woolf was, was saying, is that we need more power in the present. And one of the ways to get that is by understanding and studying the past and how we got to where we are and how that can help us, you know, be different, live in a different kind of society. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, and too, when when you were asking me about like uh, what you know what I learned in school, like when I was younger, I, I it was the same. Like I remember just learning about all the presidents and their wives, and I don't know, like there just really wasn't like a huge mention of like women or women's history, or you know by extension, you know Black history. Like we did Black History Month, and then that was it. Like it wasn't like we heard about other marginalized identities and their stories and their histories. And so when I went to college, it was like just so eye opening to me. And it was just it was just so interesting to like learn like, oh, my God, that's right. Like, I've never even like questioned this. I've just been taught this for so long. And I think it's really empowering. And it's just really eye opening in general to just learn about like your history and the history of other marginalized identities. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's pretty useful. <laughs> in yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that kind of leads to my next question, because I remember when I read uh, The Creation of pa Patriarchy uh, by Gerda Lerner, and this was years, this was years ago, and I will never forget how I felt because my, my women gender studies professor signed this to us. And I was just reading it like I would any other like book for school, but it like really left an impact on me because it said it, like it starts this right away with women have been systematically excluded from the enterprise of creating symbol systems, philosophies, science and law. Women have not only been educationally deprived throughout historical time in every known society, they've been excluded from theory formation. And so I was wondering because this was obviously very disheartening for me and to I think there's there is hope as well in this kind of uh, realm of study. But do you ever feel like disheartened when you when you're learning these things through your PhD and just in life? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's impossible not to. And I remember that's pretty much how I felt when I when I read the creation of patriarchy as well. Uh, but I mean, like like her, I believe that by understanding how things that we come to believe that can't be changed were actually created, how they have a history behind them, these are not fixed categories, that means we can change them. It's not naive or optimistic, it's, it's realistic. It's almost an optimistic book, I would say, even though, you know, you wouldn't think so. But <laughs> if something was created, it can be deconstructed, right? It's not permanent, it's not fixed, it, it can be rethought, reimagined. And in my case, I, I do feel frustrated sometimes researching women's history. And in my case, specifically, it's the main problem is because there are so few primary sources, so much fewer primary sources than than there are to study to study men, you know, so we are always 
largely having to work with whatever we have available to us and uh, and that's very that's very frustrating because we we often don't get to find the voices that we're looking for so for instance in my case i'm i'm very interested in midwives and wet nurses and their role caring for women and children but the issue is that many of them didn't know how to write or did you know and and that means they didn't left they didn't leave any records or if they did read and write sometimes those journals they don't survive they weren't considered important enough valuable enough to be preserved so we have very few of these resources on the other hand for male physicians we have plenty of documents to use you know so it's just it's not balanced to begin with and that means that we have to be creative with how we go about finding these women finding not only women but you know all kinds of people who aren't who aren't well white men basically so we we have to be creative with reading historical sources we have to read against the grain to sort of uh, try to find these missing voices so if we're if we're reading um inquisition transcripts of trials for instance they mm. are not a direct you know, a, a direct link with the person who was being, who's, who was speaking, they are ventriloquized, they are, you know, they are transcribed, they are adapted by someone else. But there is something there that we can, we can work with. So, and that's very, it's very interesting as a researcher, I think, to try and be creative and find ways of finding these people. But at the same time, it is very frustrating and very sad. And Sometimes we do find something. I was working with a book that was uh, heavily annotated. It was a medical book heavily annotated by, I think, a midwife based on the annotations on, on the notes and, and all of that. But I don't know her name. I don't think I ever will because even though I ended up deducing that this is probably a midwife and the way she annotated the medical book told me a lot about her practice, I'll never really know her name. Mm. And, you know, so that's, that's very frustrating. But on the other hand, I also often feel inspired as well when I research them, especially where childbirth and child, re child rearing are concerned, because women wrote letters and journals and they gave each other advice and they created a whole network of support to help each other. And I think those are the stories that need to be told, the stories of how even though the systems were very much set up against women or excluding women, still we managed to connect, create community, you know, thrive even. And I think that's really inspiring. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And I think, too, it's really interesting hearing you talk about, like, having to find these women because, like, they do exist. I think history sometimes, if we're talking about, like, white cis men history or whatever, or, like, powerful history, like, people who have, quote, unquote, won throughout history and who get to tell these stories, um, really, like, 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 make us think that they don't exist, that these women and marginalized people don't exist in history, but they do. There just might not be, like, documents, like you said, to find them. So sometimes we really have to, like, try and research, and that can be really difficult, I'm sure. But it's, it is hopeful, like you said, to know that these people did exist, and they're out there, you know? Because, yeah, I agree the creation of patriarchy is kind of hopeful in that way to show that, like, this was constructed, like, it can be deconstructed eventually. And I just was hopefully. talking about this. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> and I was, I was, I was, yeah, I was just talking about this on another episode I did recently about how, like, it can be, like, disheartening and, like, it's easy to get cynical when faced with these really big systems like patriarchy. But on the other hand... Like, there's really no other way for me to, like, live, if that makes sense. Like, I would rather, like, fight against it, research it, um, talk about it, than just kind of, like, accept it, so. Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. We have to keep on talking. That's for sure. Yeah. This is the only thing we can do sometimes, you know, is just, like, talk these stories, have counter stories to these, like, mainstream yes. histories people tell us. So, yeah. 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 No, for yeah. sure. Um, so kind of uh, continuing to talk about the book. So um, the creation of patriarchy kind of begins with this line of women's history is indispensable and essential to the emancipation of women. So how do women's history and feminism intersect? 
I think that's such a good quote. Uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with her. I think I think women's history is essential to feminism. And well, first of all, I think it's a matter of identity, of belonging and, and really um, self-esteem, really. It's we all want to feel like we have a history, that we are connected to the past, we're something to something bigger than ourselves. And it's important to feel that our story is worth telling our history is worth telling but i also i also think that you know like you mentioned history can also anger us and that's good there can be good anger that incites us to action to do something to make you know a change and 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 advocate for it so i think history can it can sadden us but it can also propel us to move and to get started to do something to want to make change changes and I think that's really that's really inspiring and also I think history can also show us that you know despite everything the people who did find ways of existing and and thriving under this, this very difficult circumstances sometimes they can show us well the amazing things that people people can do and and I think that there's another another layer to, to why this is so important. I think that a lot of um, many of right wing arguments today against something or you know many things really seen as progressive, they often weaponize history in their favor. And I think that's very dishonest and disingenuous sometimes. So um, if we're thinking of um, abortion rights, for instance, you know, and, and the, the recent ruling that, that we've, we've seen and, and people like me outside of the US, we were so disheartened um, to see. I think um, it was very common for people supporting the change to say, well, traditionally, well, historically, and I hate those adverbs, you know, mm -hmm. how people just go about randomly saying this, that, you know, abortion was always, you know, was always a problem it was never it wasn't supposed to have been legalized in the first place and all of that so i think that's very um disingenuous but it's also very manipulative because they are manipulating history so effectively sadly but they are so good at that at crafting a narrative crafting a story and and i think that we it's our responsibility to do the opposite to show examples and cases and argue with lots of historical data to back us up that you know that's just not true that's that's not always the case you know it's, it's simply not so so i think studying the past can very much help shape the political discourse in the present and i think as historians we have to be involved that that's one of the reasons why I started getting more and more interested in, in activism and sort of moving away from academia and more into that sphere because whenever I would go to conferences and things, I, I really enjoy it. I, I love research. I, I really enjoy reading and writing. I think that's very, very intellectually fulfilling and satisfying. But sometimes I felt like, well, okay, <laughs> what about, you know, what about what's actually going on, you know, all around us and how can we be more involved, be more proactive and be able to to weaponize as well, to use history in our favor and, mm. you know, make honest arguments against against right wing people, basically, and how we can use history to to back up, back up our opinions, really. And, you know, so I think I think I think history is so connected to feminism because of that, because it's an essential tool for feminism, really, and it would be a shame not to use it. I think that's an amazing point. And I really like what you said too about anger being a motivator. I can't remember off the top of my head who said this. Oh gosh, I think it was not Audre Lorde. Maybe it was Audre Lorde. But um, it was about how anger is like a tool. Oh and yes, like, yes, it was, yeah. Oh, yes, good for me. Um, <laughs> and how anger is like useful and to kind of like, and um, Archie uh, Lord is like a black woman and how anger has been used like to weaponized against her, but how you can find usefulness in that and you can and it can drive you. And I think it's the same in feminism. Like, I think it is kind of a useful tool. And especially with history, the same thing. Like it really, I think, contextualizes like the way things have been, especially with systems of oppression. And I also really like what you said about like right-wing arguments too, like using historically. And I think they try to make it sound like it's like fact so that it's harder mm -hmm. to argue when really, like you said, they're just like twisting their own sort of narrative. It's kind of like how 
in the US where I live, they say like, oh, Abraham Lincoln was like an abolitionist and he was a Republican. And it's oh, like, well. yeah, it's like, well, you know, it has literally changed so much what we consider Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. And so it's like, that doesn't even apply yeah, to today. It just makes no sense. It's yeah, yeah. Let's just let's not even go there. <laughs> those, yeah, no, because those labels they they are not the same as they were. They, they it's li literally it's different. Well, it's different everything. So yeah. Yeah, the abortion ruling was really it was really rough here, and it was it was just so odd because like obviously it had been you know happening for a while, but I mean I, yeah, and abortions have been happening for literally forever, like literally yes. forever. And so to say that like just because they're not legal and whatever, it's like that doesn't even like yeah. count, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. Oh, I lost my spy here. Where are we going? Um, so kind of talking about feminism and stuff, it kind of feels strange to me as someone who grew up as like a woman uh, to consider how feminist activists had to like fight for their right to have history, like almost like an out of body, like, wow, like, like, that's like crazy to think about. Um, and I think while we have come so far in 2023, women gender studies is still not seen as a credible line of study, which is something we've been kind of discussing already, or like not useful. Mm -hmm. So how does this current belief mirror the feelings of people from the past who didn't see women's history as valid? Because I think these narratives kind of cycle through. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's, yeah, it's very frustrating, obviously. And the humanities and liberal arts in general are very much under attack everywhere, really. And, uh, you know, especially gender, especially feminist studies. Yet at the same time, we are much better placed now than second wave feminists were. Mm. You know, we have thousands of scholars, activists, leaders, artists doing, you know, unquestionably incredible, fantastic work. And as feminists, we are also more present in the media and mainstream conversations than we have ever been in the past. So I, I like to think that in a way, and maybe that's me being optimistic again, but I think that all this recent bigotry, all this recent like hatred that we've seen in the past few years, maybe that's a backlash. Maybe that's a sign that those of us who are, who are fighting for these causes are getting somewhere, you know? Maybe that's a sign that the people who are less progressive are afraid, that they're afraid of the all the things we are achieving, all the progress we are making, and and how we we can and we are getting better at working together. So, you know, I I always say that we're not all in the same boat, you know, because issues mm -hmm. like like you mentioned, race, class, age, gender, ability and disability, all of that. Mm -hmm all that shapes the way we experience the world. But we are all facing the same storm, even if we're not in the same boat, you know? So whether we're thinking of the patriarchy in general or COVID or climate change, all of that, we need to learn how to work together and support each other while considering keeping track of these differences and how they inform our perspective, you know, on everything. So I think um, those who believe that women and women's history and gender history are not valid fields of study, they do echo beliefs from the past. And especially like in, in the medieval period, there was very much this dichotomy that the all the intellectual brainy aspects of everything that was connected to maleness to manhood and women were sort of quote and you know in quotation marks but not not so much as you would like they were sort of like the more animal aspect of of you know of the of human beings so this dichotomy of women being more animal and men being more intellectual it, it comes like all the way back well we can go all the way back to aristotle for that um, wonderful idea but there's this idea that because women are not as rational, intellectual, capable of abstraction, capable of logic, of reasoning, because women are more viscerally connected to her, to their, our really, animal side because of, you know, of childbirth and child rearing, mm -hmm. breastfeeding, all of that, that means that in a way we sort of exist in an atemporal sort of, you know, disconnected world in a way that history is not as relevant to us because we exist in this sort of liminal state where we're not even fully human and you know that's obviously a misogynistic way of of thinking and medieval medieval um men who who wrote about women as being deprived deprived of reason um yeah they were not the most <laughs> 
feminist uh, of people but yeah. you know but that's that's the idea that women don't really have a history because while men have been been creating arts and doing battle and all of that we're just basically making children so that doesn't really count you know it's in the private sphere it's not you know it's just not as important or, or interesting and and the the people who say that they will argue that you know there's no female shakespeare no female einstein which is so ludicrous it's just not true because despite the fact that we have to work with such limited sources as as historians we do know that there were women in in the past who did all these incredible things even against all odds even though they're not as well known obviously as you know mm -hmm. as as the male equivalents we have artists like artemisia gentileschi who is fantastic and equally just as good as Caravaggio or any other masters, you know, but she's just not as well known. When I was studying art history, I didn't learn anything about her. I came mm. across her later. So, you know, they are there, these women, we just have to find them. And when we do find them, we have to talk about them. And that can even more so if we're thinking of queer people and queer women, oh my God, <laughs> even, even more so because these stories are so less known and incomplete but that's why we have to study them that's why we have to dig them up and you know and really really talk about them and we're starting to get there really i am optimistic you know with a series like like gentleman jack i think yeah. that's really cool it's become mainstream people know who Anne Lister, you know was and that's fantastic it used to be just a few half a dozen scholars who were really into her and and now we can all be in love with her so i think that's yeah. really fantastic yeah yeah, I think that's really all really great points. Um, and too, I, I agree that like the anger and the backlash we're receiving from like right wing people can be seen as that we are making progress and is kind of hopeful in that way. And when you're also talking about like how there's no like people claim like, oh, there's no like women Shakespeare and stuff. It was reminding me of um, Virginia Woolf when she had that uh, like women's Shakespeare. I think it was Virginia mm -hmm. Woolf. Uh, analogy like saying that like if there was one like she would have never even happened anyways because all of these things happening against women and yeah. it just goes to show you that like just because there isn't like a quote unquote women Shakespeare doesn't mean like yeah. you said that there weren't really talented women playwrights yeah. they just might not have had their opportunity and yeah. it's really cool to like like you said like find these like voices in history and like see all the things they've done because they're off there. We just, we, they just never had like, you know, a platform or a way to like yeah. be seen, unfortunately. So until now. And I, and I think also with, with the Virginia Woolf example in, you know, uh, a room of one's own, that's the thing you, you, you do require some resources, material things to be able to make art. You yeah. need some money, you need a space, you need not to be threatened or you know you need all that and that's something that men usually sort of take for granted really and that's not been the case for most women throughout history and I also think that we need to acknowledge the major role that women have had in supporting these artists you know like without his wife Tolstoy would he have been able to do much because she basically ran his life and and then in after that she wrote all the books I think these women, these women deserve to be acknowledged, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, and kind of speaking of like queer history, uh, it's also pretty absent. Um, however, I think as we've been kind of talking about, there are ways to find ourselves um, in history with organizations like the Lesbian Her Story Archives in New York, which I just learned about like last year and it was like so mm. cool. And uh, the Lesbian Her Story Archives is home to the world's largest collection of materials by and about lesbians in their communities, which is so cool because I'm a lesbian. Um, so how does history kind of connect us with our communities and with each other? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a really cool place. And we do have some initiatives like that in the UK, mm -hmm. like the Feminist Library is really cool. And mm -hmm. I think places like that, especially if they're able to run events for the public, if they are good with public engagement, with outreach, I think they have a vital role in connecting people and building communities especially for queer people, I'd say, because, you know, regardless of how oppressed you are as a straight woman, there are usually lots of women around you who are going through more or less the same thing you are. And that's not mm. always the case for queer people. 
And I think, I don't know, if you're growing up in a tiny hamlet and you think there's no one like you around, I think it's vital that there should exist places like that mm -hmm. where you can learn about other queer people in, in the present, but even more so in the past. I think it's it legitimizes your existence in a way that is transcendental, that can never be, you know, under... I don't know. I think that uh, we should never take it for granted. It's something so so incredible that that we can find this connection. And I think places like that, they can show that throughout hit, throughout history, queer people, trans people, intersex people have always existed and they have always been a part of society, you know, even if not always openly or even if they weren't, you know, welcome with open mm. arms, but they they have been there. And and so for the people who argue that queer people don't don't or shouldn't exist, history can show us that it's just not true. People have existed, you know, for millennia. There's nothing we can do. And, you know, and I think that the, the straight washing that we see in mm. uh, in media and if, even in history, I remember studying even in university at uh, the university level about um, about Troy and all of that and Patroclus and Achilles. They were such good friends. And I'm like, really, are we going with that? So, you know, I think I think we this straight washing is just so detrimental because obviously if you go and do proper research, you'll see it's it's rubbish. But mm -hmm. I don't know if you're a 12 year old and you're just having like hearing about it for the first time, you might not question it. You might think, yeah, they were really close friends. They weren't lovers. And and I think that these narratives that are becoming more common now in 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 series and and films, I think they're so important, you know, like with the with the favorite, like Queen Anne wasn't just very close with the Duchess of Marlborough. If you if you read their letters, they're so passionate, they're so sexual, mm -hmm. you know, the letters show that they're not good friends. So, you know, I think that when we acknowledge this history and we avoid straight washing in, in the present and in the past, even more so, then we can understand that people of the past are human beings just like us. They are fully rounded people with preferences, identities, struggles mm -hmm. and prejudices and all of that. And I think that connection really fosters a connection between people in the present as well. It just makes us realize that we're all humans. We all have our issues, but we should be aiming for connection, I think, and for understanding and empathy. So, yeah, yeah so I, I think places like, like the Lesbian Archive, it's just, it's a really a lesson in empathy. So mm -hmm. I think it's, it's a vital, it's a vital thing for us to have. We should have more initiatives like that, really. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's really great to hear. Like, I totally agree. And yeah, I feel like it does give us a sense of connection with the past and the present. And it's always just like so cool when I like learn about like, you know, like couples or I even just see pictures of lesbian couples. It just like in like, uh, even in the 70s or whatever, the 60s, just like warms my my little heart. And even on my wall, like I have a collage full of like just random pictures. <laughs> I have a lot of like, um, stuff from like you know the the uh, the lgbtq revolution like on my wall because mm -hmm. it's just like it's nice to see that like we've existed for so long and yeah. for other marginalized identities it's like the same you know it's like we just haven't like been you know seen we just haven't people didn't want to see us and so it's really mm -hmm. great with stuff like the archives that really give us like a voice and give us like visibility like we're here we're taking up space we're queer so yes yeah, yeah. that's fabulous yeah yeah um, so I just kind of wanted to shift a little to gender history because I know that's obviously one of your focuses. So how does gender history come into play and how has it kind of changed feminist spaces today? Yeah, I think I think that's a, an interesting uh, point because um, the difference really between women's history and gender history, because, well, in the beginning, so women's history uh, developed alongside and within feminist spaces, like from the beginning, right? And uh, it acquired legitimacy within universities, became an integral part of the development of these spaces and the academic debates. And so with publications as well, like magazines and, and women's groups and associations, they were all very connected with the development of women's history as a discipline. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, academics have have shown how women were pushed out of the world of healthcare. For instance, that's something that I'm interested in, such as midwives gradually being replaced by male physicians in the world of mm -hmm. childbirth. 
and what happened with that shift of, of losing traditional experiential uh, empiric female knowledge and, and how now we're seeing an effort to recover and recreating this knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think, I think this process is so interesting because if we think of the Boston feminists and our bodies ourselves, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to reclaim and recreate a kind of knowledge that we as women used to have and that was lost in a way as the world of reproduction became more medicalized and more dominated by, by men. So I think history had a crucial role to play in the development of, of this discourse of reclamation of knowledge and recreation, you know. So I think with, with the Boston Collective and the goal of educating women about their body's reproduction, they were fulfilling a role that 500 years prior would have been fulfilled by a network of women, mm -hmm. by women chatting and helping each other after birth, helping take care of the new mother. And so the recovery of the history of women went hand in hand with the development of feminist spaces and political changes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think that we were still as feminists, we were still in the 80s and even 90s, very much focused on the history of women. And, you know, and that was that was the label that we had. And and I, I think gender studies and gender history are just much better terms, because I think um, if, you know, since the Stonewall riots and, and mm -hmm. even more so after the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, mm -hmm. gay rights started really becoming more of a, a part of the mainstream conversation. But also, I think it became clear that feminism back then, what we today call white feminism, mm -hmm. didn't consider race, didn't consider class, mm -hmm. didn't include many people such as, you know, black, brown women, trans people, um, intersex people, disabled people, queer people. Mm -hmm. And and so this move from women's history to gender history allowed academics to write a broader, more inclusive history. Mm -hmm. And that's why I always say that I'm a gender historian. I'm not a historian of women because I'm, I'm interested in all kinds of, of people. What, what my interest is using gender as a lens for analyzing history and not focusing exclusively on women, mm -hmm. you know, because, uh, and I think with this, all this talk about the erasure, erasure of women and women's rights and all of that, I think we have to be very mindful. We have to tread carefully with how we, we use vocabulary, you know, because this is a good shift, I think, from women's history to gender history. It mm -hmm. allows us to be more inclusive. And I, I don't see any downsides on that, you know, because women were and are very much a big, you know, a big part of that. But so too are other groups. And as always, there are people who don't welcome these changes. I, I think gender is just a much more useful category than women. And it, it does encompass everything and everyone, men included, you know. Even if you're, if you're studying white, straight, cis men, gender is an interesting lens to analyze them through. We can think of masculinity and how it was and is defined and what, the, what does that mean for everyone else, you know. So I think it's, I think it's a good shift and it's, uh, it's something that I think is, is not only is it more ethical and moral, but I think it's more intellectually interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think it's really cool to hear you uh, talk about this too. I remember like learning about like gender, I forget the one famous one article I read, but like, it's it's really interesting. Like just even looking at, like you said, like how men and women are socialized as like gendered people and yeah. just like the choices they make. So like, like you said, even using a lens like that, if you're mm -hmm. saying quote unquote white uh, cis straight men is useful and I really to appreciate the shift in inclusivity through gender history too because like you said like there's just like so many different people out there who have been marginalized who you know should be included in history and i also really appreciate your website and you know your section on inclusivity too and i think it goes to show that like you know it's important to make you know these changes and to incorporate more marginalized identities into history because these people existed. And it's it's also interesting to just read about and to learn, you know, I really find gender as like a, a socialization concept really interesting. And it really like fascinated me when I read about it. And I just even thinking about like how, um, you know, men take up so much more physical space 
than yes. women. Like I remember learning about how women uh, say sorry more and how they move uh, like move away, you know, from men if they're on the sidewalk. Like women are more often to like veer off and like make space. And so I did this thing in undergrad where I just like refused to like move, and it was so. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it was I so interesting. That. People yeah. like decked me, like fully, like men would like deck me because I wouldn't move over and they wouldn't move over. And yeah. granted, I was, you know, I was a little angry, like 19 year old feminist, <laughs> but like it was, it was, it was so interesting. And so, but yeah, that's so I cool. Sharing. And we have to do that. We have to be intentional. And, but at the same time, because we are, we have been socialized as, as girls, as women to behave a certain way. Sometimes it's so difficult. And I remember my, uh, during my PhD, my supervisor, who's a very cool, uh, very cool lesbian. She yeah. was, uh, she was, she's very, uh, she's very good at teaching you how to basically take up space right yeah. and so in the beginning uh, we would have meetings about the research and she would ask me how things were going and I would explain what I was doing in the archives and all all of that and I would go does that make sense does that make sense and mm -hmm. one day she was like stop everything you say does make sense assume that you are making sense if you're not I will tell you and I thought that's so good because and, and she was very good about telling me like stop apologizing like it's you don't have to say sorry all the time you don't have to wonder if you're being too loud or disruptive you know and yeah she's 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 a really cool lady and i i think i learned a lot from from her with just that kind of thing like yeah of course you're making sense why wouldn't you be making sense how many times have you heard men saying does that make sense does that make sense you know they just yeah. assume they are making sense and why wouldn't they you yeah know? They, yeah, they literally, I feel like they never question, not never, I shouldn't say that. They rarely question themselves in the same way women do. You know, I feel like we're always like, or even I remember when I was in high school and I was in this group project with two other guys and they were really popular and I was really nervous and I kept like answering questions, but I would make it sound like a question because I was mm -hmm. nervous that like what I was saying wasn't right. So I yes. would kind of, and the one guy was like, why do you keep saying it like that? <laughs> And I was I like, love, I love that he called you out. <laughs> yeah, he did. I was like, I was like, oh man, okay. I was like, I gotta like strengthen my convictions here. But yeah, it's it's always interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. That was, you know, we love <laughs> lesbian professors. They, they. Oh yes, them. they are the coolest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, kind of our last questions here. So, on your website, you wrote that the website began as a way to bridge the distance between academic debates on gender and the wider community. So how else can we kind of bring these conversations outside of just academia? Yeah, I think that's such a good question. That's sort of my goal in life is uh, it's just making sure that these conversations are not exclusively had within academic circles. And well, that was one of the reasons why I started uh, my blog and the newsletter because um, so in, in 2021, I ran an event about the history of childbirth. Mm -hmm. But it was because it was meant for the general public, I thought that it would be very boring and non like just not very interesting to have me going on and on for an hour about how did people, you know, give birth in the 17th century or something like that. And mm -hmm. so I, I asked a friend um, who's a doula. She was my doula for when I was giving birth. And um, I asked her if she would be in the event with me and we would go back and forth like um, I would talk about something like um, the use of light and smells to to help with the childbirth um, process. I would say, well, in the 17th century, we would have mm -hmm. all the curtains and drapes, everything would be closed and all of that. And then she would go, well, you know, today in hospitals and home births, we usually try to have all lights dimmed and all of that. And, mm -hmm. and so the event went really well because I think we were so good at making the connection between the past and present. I think that's what people were interested in, you know, because we we had like we had plenty of people interested in history and all of that. But we had midwives, nurses, doctors and activists, and they were asking really good questions about the way things are today in in UK hospitals and home births. And how was it before? What can we do that is an improvement? And what can we go back, you know, and, and improve based on on what they were already doing right? So mm -hmm. we tend to assume usually I think people who are not historians tend to presume 
that history is sort of like going, it's an upwards trend. It's just getting better. And, you know, especially if we're talking about scientific and technological developments, there's this idea that everything is better now than it was before. And for yeah. some things, for many things, that is true. And for others, it's not. I think, you know, if you're giving birth and you are able to have your mom, your friend, your sister, if you're able to have people who, who are able to support you and encourage you, that's fantastic. And that's something that that's how people gave birth in the 16th century. That's not how we give birth today, usually, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the West. And, you know, so I think there's lots to be to be learned. And and so because the event was so fascinating to me, just I was fascinated by the people's interest, maybe how, how people were interested in this. So I started the, the blog and the newsletter and trying to um, communicate my research. And so the website came as a natural consequence. And and then I, since then, I started working with charities and museums. I work in the Vagina Museum as a volunteer and uh, just outreach public engagement campaigns and things. And I've been trying to use my historical research within these fears to sort of inform conversations about these issues in the present. So mm -hmm. I've been I've been writing lots of blogs and freelance writing, that kind of thing, and and sort of trying to help people connect the dots, because I think we're, we, we can't all be experts in everything. Right. And I'm, I'm definitely not. But I think that the things that we do know and that can be helpful and useful, we should share, you know, and we should we should use that to inform discourse. And yeah, so I think it's really, it's really cool to study gender in, in a university. I think that's fascinating, but it's not really reaching as many people as a historical novel would, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the importance of media like that, of, you know, a march for abortion rights or a, a, a series like Gentleman Jack, you know, mm -hmm. I think those have such an important role to play. And yeah, I think history has to be a part of these conversations outside of academia in feminist spaces. But not only that, not only that, I think we have to have these conversations in mainstream media and we are increasingly having them through activism sometimes and sometimes the arts, museums, book clubs. So history can be can be taught in any any way we can think of, really. I think for most people, when they think of history, especially like key episodes that most people know, uh, thinking of like um, childbirth and, and all of that. If you're thinking of like Henry VIII wanting to have an heir and Anne Boleyn and all of that story, when people, especially here in the UK, people are fascinated with the Tudors. It's 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 kind of weird for people who are not English like me, but you know, anyway. But um, the thing is that um, they do remember these stories, but not from what they learned to school in school. Usually it's it's films it's media it's you know it's the other boleyn girl you mm. know and i think i think that's great because that means we can make history approachable accessible interesting but also useful in in advancing causes that we're we're passionate about you know and hopefully as we go along we can include more people who are traditionally left out of this this retelling you know yeah yeah that's really great. Yeah. And, and I really like the connection to you made with media. I think it just teaches us so much too, and like a really entertaining way. And it really helps us kind of see like the perspective of other people too. And like, like you mentioned earlier, it really builds empathy. And yeah. it's really cool to see like how you utilize your research and your, you know, your degree, like in, you know, other spaces. And I think it's really, really cool. And I, I just really appreciate you coming on the show too, and continuing that discussion with me. So yeah, thank you so much. Seriously, this has been great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's been such a pleasure. I love, I love talking all things <laughs> feminism and history. So for me, it's, you know, it's just a joy, really. <laughs> Well, we will move on to the last portion of the show, and this is like my favorite thing to do. But before I start, uh, do you, Julie, do you know your um, Sun, Moon, and Rising by chance, your astrological chart? Yes, yes, I do. I do because I have a friend who's an astrologer, <laughs> and I was, I was talking to her, and I mentioned that you were interested in that. And mm -hmm. so even though I had no idea about any of this information beforehand, but she did help me out. So. Oh, great. Okay. Yay. Well, I will, I will guess here. Okay. So I'll, I'll guess all three and then you can reveal the answer. So 
I honestly am feeling like earth sign energy from you in like such a big way because you're very um, articulate and you like research and I feel like earth sign people are really like <clears throat> academically motivated and yeah I don't know I'm giving like I'm getting Virgo energy from you but it could be that could be your rising sign because rising is how like other people perceive you so you could be a Virgo rising too but like I don't know it's so hard to guess sometimes we'll do we'll do can I can I no I'm, I'm going to wait until you do <laughs> until you're finished with all your guessing because yeah okay. I won't say anything okay Ooh, interesting okay I'm gonna do Virgo rising because why not sure and then I don't know why I feel like sometimes I have people with a lot of double or triple placements which is always interesting to me because mine are like all different. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have like another maybe earth sign as your son. I don't know. I don't not. I don't know about Taurus. What, what, are, what are the other ones? Virgo, Taurus. Oh gosh. I don't know. But, but at the same time, we'll just do Taurus sun. Cause why not? We're fun. And then I always say this too for like moons, for like people who are like intellectuals. And also too, like you clearly care about like, you know, fairness and like, you know, power dynamics like we've been talking about. And that gives Libra energy to me because Libras are like there and there. And I'm a Libra and I also love Libras. So I don't know why. I'm guessing like Libra moon. And I think I also gave someone a Libra moon the other day when I when they were on my show. Okay. So okay, like interesting. Yes, sometimes I get it all wrong, and then sometimes I get it right, and I lo I love doing it either way. But what's your what's your chart? I'm so fascinated. Yeah, so no, you were so right with the rising uh, rising sign as Virgo. Yeah, that's that's so funny. Like uh, uh, just being completely honest here because I don't know anything about astrology really, mm. and it's no it's not something that I've ever like seriously write about it you know i i am interested in astrological medicine like 16th and 17th century astrological medicine which is not the same thing but you know uh so yeah so it's interesting to me because you were so right like so spot on uh That's yes right. virgo yes okay. right uh, you were you were close with taurus uh oh. yeah but not right as in aries <laughs> but you know it's, we're in it's aries. the next it's the next one isn't it it's aries and then taurus right afterwards I yes i think so too oh my god you're an aries that's so cool but you are the expert so i don't know <laughs> and, yeah and the and the moon like yeah completely off aquarius <laughs> what's your moon uh aquarius oh 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 does that make any sense um yes i think so i kind of know the moon signs i just do for fun moon signs are so hard to guess too when you meet someone because um they're like who you are when you're alone like your inner emotions mm. and so it can be hard for me to get like after first impression of moon sign but sometimes yeah. like i do get it and mm. but that's interesting aquarius too is an air placement so i kind of similar with the libra moon you're you're yeah. in the air field yeah. and then an aries sun is really interesting i have i have some aries suns friends and they're all so different and i don't know it's just i just really it's really interesting because some signs kind of all have very similar characteristics and then mm -hmm. some people i meet and it's like they're all so different and so it's mm -hmm. all interesting um like my two friends who are gemini's um, they're both like so so similar and I tell them that all the really? time yeah <laughs> and they're like and they're like they're different ages too but I'm like you guys need to meet like you would become yeah. um yeah, funny. <laughs> yeah yeah well thanks for for sharing your chart with us I always enjoy that yeah definitely I, I love just sort of games like that of like guessing and and all of that I think it's really cool well now I'm curious about yours can you share just just briefly just so I know well oh, you know, of course I'm sure your listeners already know but I don't <laughs> Sure, of course. I'm a Libra sun. Mm -hmm. um, I have a Taurus rising. Mm -hmm. And I have a um, Aries moon, actually. Mm. Well, I'll have to go and, and look it up and see what does that mean, because I don't know. But once I know what it means, I'll be able to have a comeback. Oh, now, and if that makes sense or not. Yeah, you'll have to get back to me. Libra suns yeah. 
I always like like link them to famous people too. I think it gives people a perspective. Like Kim Kardashian's a Libra sign. I think she's like mm. a good like. And then like cancers are super emotional, so I always say like Post Malone is a cancer. So like <laughs> no, it's like and he's always crying about some girl. So so yeah, but yeah. Well, thank you. I'm going to ask my famous question, of course. Mm. Um, Julia, why are you happy to be here? Whether that's in life right now in this moment, it's really up to you to interpret. Yeah, wow. Uh, well, I'm happy to be here talking and chatting because that's what I love to do the most, really. I never stop, basically. But I'm also happy to be here in life, uh, having just survived my PhD because it was a very long, grueling, sort of very tricky process because I basically started this PhD six years ago. I think mm -hmm. seven maybe I don't know mm -hmm. it's been a while I changed universities and then the pandemic and then I had a child mm -hmm. and all of that without having any kind of family in the UK all my family is in Brazil so mm -hmm. well my husband's here but you know besides mm -hmm. him so we you know it was a, a long journey to get here so I'm very happy to be here post PhD having more time and energy to dedicate you know to do other things focus on other projects and and see my daughter grow which is really cool and see her develop a very British accent which for me is very weird especially because she corrects my English already which you know will only get better I'm sure but you know I'm sure when she's a teenager she'll be even even more like merciless but yeah so I'm happy yeah. to be here <laughs> oh that's great well thank you so much again Julia for coming on the show this has been a delight to have you so thank, thank you so much thanks Kate for having me yeah of course all right guys that's all I got for you this is me signing off bye